Hey everyone, welcome to this week's Power Hour podcast. We've got a great lineup, so let's get started. Good morning, everyone. I'm Bill Miles with the Hilton Head Island Bluffton Chamber of Commerce. Welcome, and we're so glad that uh, you're able to join us this morning. You know, back on February 5th of 1957, two gentlemen came together, Charles Frazier and Orion Hack, to form the Hilton Head Island Chamber of Commerce at that point. And uh, the first uh, the first location was at the old schoolhouse in Honeyorn Plantation. Six decades later, we're celebrating this month our 65th anniversary. And uh, we're just delighted to be doing that and are so thrilled that those who came before us made such an impact on the community and are thankful for the impact that we're able to leave as well. So we'll be celebrating all month with our members and uh, ask that you please check us out on social media and you'll be seeing videos and other things that we're doing throughout the month to celebrate and to really say thank you for your uh, support during those last 65 years. I'll give you a quick reminder right now. I know that questions are a big part of this. We already have questions that have come in this morning and I just remind you if you would to uh, go to the chat box and start submitting additional questions. Well, it's February, so what does that mean? It's gotta be foodie February. I also wanna thank all of those who participated in our 14th annual Chamber Restaurant Week. It was a, a tremendous week. I had heard great responses from many of our restaurants. Uh, we had over 100,000 click-throughs checking out menus and reservations on our Chamber Restaurant chamberrestaurantweek.com website. So I think we had close to 60 restaurants participating and uh, the restaurants that I went to during restaurant week, food was certainly fabulous, the service was great and uh, the restaurants were full and that's what we like to see. Speaking of February, we know we're rolling into uh, festival season and fortunately spring is on the way, very anxious for that, I'm sure as you are. And I just remind you to uh, enjoy Saber Sea Pines as well as the Hilton Head Island uh, Seafood Festival, which will be uh, on the, the, along with the 26th annual Gullah celebration. So we've got Saver Sea Pines and then the Hilton Head Island Seafood Festival, as well as the 26th anniversary of the Gullah celebration, all happening during Foodie February. Well, let's get right into the lineup. We have some very interesting speakers today. Uh, we've got a great lineup, and so we're going to get right into it. We'll be, first of all, we'll be talking a little bit about financial resources. We'll hear from our uh, healthcare leaders and then uh, a couple other things that we'll be adding in this morning. So we think back to uh, early on during the pandemic, the, Co the CARES Act helped a lot of businesses secure low interest loans in the early part of the pandemic. South Carolina received almost $2 billion in CARES Act funding for distribution. And there are some businesses that are feeling the impact of the pandemic. And the good news is there are still funds available to help. To give us details today is Randy Pellicero. And Randy is a senior lending officer at Catawba Regional Council of Governments. Randy, good morning. And uh, our listeners this morning are looking forward to hearing ways that they might be able to access some additional funding. <laughs> Good morning, Bill, and thank you very much. Uh, somebody give me a heads up if you can't hear me. Sometimes I'm technically challenged, but I think I'm online. We've all done enough Zoom calls by now. Thank you, sir. Um, I'd just like to tell all the businesses, we're one of the entities that kind of works behind the scene on your behalf 
So I've got about uh, 20 slides I want to share real quickly that tell you a little bit about what we can do. I'm going to focus on one primary program, but I don't have to tell all the businesses in the area that you've got a great chamber and they're doing great things for you. And uh, you also live in a great place. Bill mentioned some of the things in terms of food, foodie network, the Gola celebrations coming on, wine and food fests. I mean, just a great place. I go down to your area quite often, not only for business, but my mother-in-law has a home, oh, less than an hour away in Richmond Hill, Georgia. So I see quite a bit of everybody. I see the presentation is queued up, so I want to quickly get through this and leave some time for Q&A at the end. Again, I'm Randy Pellicero. I am from the Catawba Regional Council of Government. If we can go to the next slide, please. Your area council of government is called Low Country. Uh, Sabrina Graham and others there support you in a number of ways if you're not familiar with them. Uh, everything from economic development, uh, economic development loans, which I support for the area, to grant writing for water sewer infrastructure, uh, job training, a, a whole list of things. And the councils of government were formed over 30 years ago across the state, and there's 10 of them, to provide services to the municipalities that they might not be able to have on their own. And Catawba Regional has been aggressively working to get loan dollars out in the marketplace for over 30 years. We support the SBA programs, the Economic Development Administration's Revolving Loan Fund, the USDA program, and we're a, a contaminated properties loan fund manager for the state of South Carolina. I wanted to show you this graphic picture because over the last few years, we have actually uh, uh, volunteered and become the manager of six other COGS economic development loan programs because if they had quit having those programs, uh, they would have had funds clawed back from the EDA and we would have lost uh, close to $6 million in loan funds that could be out supporting our small businesses. If we could go to the next slide, please. We call ourselves a COG. So that's just an image of a COG for a council of government. I mentioned some of the things that your councils of government do. In the lower right-hand side of this slide, it talks about business lending, which is gonna be my focus today, and specifically one business lending program that we continue to offer that's related to the CARES Act, but it has a timeline associated with it. If we could go to the next slide, please. The first program I mentioned, and we've had it, and had all of our programs for over 30 years for the most part, is the SBA 504 loan program, used to be called the real estate loan. Most of our loans that we support for economic development in the area and across the state are uh, done in participation with a local bank. So I spend a lot of my time calling on your local banks in the area. They're very active. You got some really good ones. But we might participate where the SBA would guarantee 50% or the bank would do rather 50% of a loan. The SBA would do up to 40%. And then with this program, you have to have 10% equity. There's a number of characteristics and parameters for this program, but you can have a loan size of up to $5 million from the SBA. So you could have a $10 million project. This is used for a lot of real estate, commercial real estate. It has to be owner occupied real estate, which is defined as the owner having 51% or more of the leasable space. And I will leave you my contact information at the end of the program today 
and would just ask you give me a call if you have any questions or you ask your local bank that you work with. We could go to the next slide, please. The revolving loan fund is a program that falls under the Economic Development Administration. It is also a loan used primarily for real estate, but it can also be used for heavy equipment. It is county specific, but we are in the four counties around the Low Country area, uh, Buford, Jasper, um, Hampton, and Colleton. And we've done quite a number of loans in the area over the years. I've been doing this for 10 years now. I'm basically a trained commercial banker. But I'll talk more about the Economic Development Administration as we move to the next slide. This is where I wanted to head to today in today's presentation. The CARES Act provided dollars. It took a while to filter through in about October of 2020. Uh, the state of South Carolina received a little over $14 million to be worked in conjunction with banks and or on its own to those entities in the state that could provide the revolving loan fund loans. So that's through the EDA, the Economic Development Administration. Catawba Regional is the largest manager of RLF funds across the state. We obtained $8.2 million of the money that came to the state. We've been lending that out aggressively starting in October of 2020. Uh, we took, quickly took uh, 90 applications for loans, approved 32 commitments, and now as today's date, we've used about 7 million of that 8.2 million. So we have 1.2 million left we can use to help participate in loans and or make loans to small businesses in need or those that were impacted by the COVID pandemic. What I wanna point out is these funds end on June 30th of this year. So June 30th of 2022, the EDA has the option of clawing these funds back, that 1.2 million. So it's my mission to get it all loaned out. And I'm talking to some of the chambers and my active chambers to uh, reiterate this message. We actually talked about this program about a year ago with the chamber. If we could go to the next slide, please. Again, I mentioned originally we had 8.2 million. We have 1.2 million now. We can make loans from 50,000 to 750,000 in participation with the bank. But what I wanna point out is the EDA knew coming out of this pandemic related recessionary environment that many banks weren't gonna be lending money right away. They were gonna see how businesses started performing coming out of the pandemic. So we were given the green light to be the primary lender. So we can make loans without a bank involved if your business was impacted by COVID. And there aren't many that weren't. So we've made a lot of loans. We've made a couple loans in the $750,000 level. Uh, most of them are $50,000 to $200,000. We set the interest rate close to market rates, but a little less. I mean, we've had rates from 2.5% to 4.5%. Terms are negotiable, lower fees, extended amortizations, lower uh, equity requirements. We'll make 95% loan-to-value loans. We've actually made some 100% loan-to-value loans in participation with banks. Uh, and you got some very active banks in the area with this program. Again, these loans can be used for anything from commercial real estate purchases to equipment purchases to working capital, but it would be a term working capital loan, not a line of credit because we can't make those kinds of loans. If we could go to the next slide, please. We do have to have an application for the South Carolina Business Loan Fund loans, which is what we coined this particular program uh, name as. 
Uh, what it states really is that if you've received PPP or EIDL loan funds for a particular purpose, you would not use these funds for that. Well, both those programs have now ended. So pretty much anything going forward, we're just documenting that the business was impacted by COVID and working as hard as we can to get funds in your hands. There's still a lot of supply chain issues out there. We see that. So we're making working capital inventory uh, loans in that regard. We've seen operating cycles that have gone from 45 days before you end up with cash to over 180 days uh, with cash in the business and having to buy a lot more inventory because you just can't get it especially for goods that come on the water, as we call it, they may be coming from China or other areas. And so we're working aggressively with businesses to try to assist when we can. We can't help help everybody, but I don't get measured by loans I make. I get measured by jobs I create, jobs I retain, and businesses that I assist. If we could go to the next slide, please. Now I'm just gonna go through a quick series of some pictures of businesses we've helped. Most of them are in the area for the Low Country Cog in your area, Hilton Head and Beaufort. A couple will be outside of the area because I wanted to show you the business types that we helped. This is basically a local electrical contractor who we helped with his office condo purchase uh, for his expansion actually. Next slide. This is a local uh, farm to table type restaurant and cafe over in Beaufort. A very good one. Uh, you just had some of your food-related activity in the, in the Hilton Head area. I hope some of you might have ventured to this business. We also helped mix steak and seafood right there on Hilton Head Island. Great place to go. I love their uh, uh, steak and uh, lettuce salad. We go to the next slide. Uh, we've actually even lent money, uh, money or in the process of lending money for an individual, a minority of Gullah Heritage to purchase a shrimp boat. So uh, it's across the board, the assets we're financing and the businesses we're trying to assist. If we could go to the next slide, please. We can do franchise restaurants, we can do equipment packages, we can do buildings. We're basically an asset-based lender in that regard. That uh, particular restaurant is up in the Columbia area, but we helped the Dairy Queen on Hilton Head in the past, which is now operating as a different entity. If we could go to the next slide. We can do convenience stores. We can do both rural convenience stores and urban convenience stores. Uh, they can be difficult to obtain financing from banks and we'll assist in any way we can. They provide a lot of services to the communities. If we could go to the next slide, please. This is an internet-based business in the area there, which had significant growth. We helped with the business expansion in terms of getting a larger building in combination with one of the local banks. So if you're impacted by COVID, it's generally, uh, it lowered sales or maybe, maybe said it to be a negative impact, but there were some businesses that were positively impacted. Next slide, please. We can do uh, auto repair shops and paint and body shops. This is one in the general area of the Hilton Head Marketplace. Next slide, please. We can do beach shops and beachwear and things that are hospitality and tourist related. This is one just off of Beaufort uh, as you're heading to Fripp. A lot of folks may know of this entity, but uh, we are happy to be able to work with a local bank to help with some uh, financing in that regard. If we could go to the next slide, please. Uh, again, an automobile repair shop there in the Bluffton area. By the way, all the businesses have given us an okay to mention their businesses. 
So uh, I just want to make sure I share that. I like to highlight them to give them some PR, but uh, this business is, is great, has a great reputation. If we go to the next slide, please. Auto Body Repair Shop in the Walterboro area near you folks. Next slide, please. Uh, this is a professional practice, dental practice. It has a tenant in the building as well. So we can have tenants when we uh, finance buildings. The tenant just has to be 49% or less of leasable space. You don't remember uh, need to remember all these things, uh, businesses out there. What you need to remember is that you do have loan support. It can come without a bank at this time through that one program I've mentioned that lasts until June 30th. And we're very aggressively trying to get those dollars out in the market. Next slide, please. We've done everything from bed and breakfasts down in the area. That's the Cuthbert House Inn in Buford. Very great place to stay. That house is over 250 years old. Pictures in the house of Union soldiers sitting on the steps, but uh, we can help with very unique property types and get things done for folks. Next slide, please. I think this might be the last one. That's another office condo where they had tenants in place where we assist the business in the area. I think that's actually on Whitman Head Island or possibly in Bluffton. Next slide. Should be my contact information. The chamber will have phone numbers for me. Um, I'm happy to talk with anybody, but what I wanted to do was turn it over to questions and answers, Q&A, uh, if I might say, and we'll uh, get back to work after this presentation on your behalf. And I wish all the businesses the best and those that are still suffering uh, that business will pick up and will normalize, as I call it. So, uh, Kelly, I'll go back to you and see if we have any questions and or Bill. Thank you. All right, Randy, thank you for that great presentation. And uh, uh, so $1.2 million left to, to distribute by June 30 of 2022. Am I correct on that? That is correct, sir. All right, great. We do have some questions for you. So glad that you'll stick around for that. The first one we have is coming from Randy. And Randy is asking, can businesses still qualify for loans for hardships in 2020 even though they may be in better shape now. And I will say that's a different Randy, but uh, <laughs> we, we're leading off with a Randy. It's not his own question. Thank you, Bill. The answer is yes. Uh, we'll look at some of the historical challenges you've had since 2020. Uh, we love to see it when the metrics have changed. Uh, we look at the overall request. And if for some reason we can't uh, provide funds through that South Carolina Business Loan Fund. We have the revolving loan fund, which is still for normal operations, and we do quite frequently. We have that SBA program, and we have the USDA's intermediary relending program down there. So if there's a way for us to get money to that business, we will look at all avenues we have, and that's one of the things we offer to the low country and to the chamber and the businesses in the area. All right, thank you for that. Janice is asking, how long does it take to get loan approval? Okay, it varies by our programs. So everybody knows the SBA loans take a little longer. And I say, if you're trying to go into an SBA process, you should have 60 to 90 days. With our Economic Development Administration's revolving loan fund, we've turned a loan in three weeks or less. I always say, give me two to four weeks. I take a week to analyze the situation. I take a week to work with my board to set a board meeting. We do them all over the telephone to seek approval. And then really it goes to the attorney and how long it takes to schedule. 
uh, that. So two to four weeks uh, for some of our revolving loan fund programs to include that South Carolina business loan fund. All right, Andrew is asking if the loans are available for startups as well as existing businesses. Yeah, that's a great question, Bill. We get that quite often. Startups are very hard to fund, but we do startups and we work off projections when we do that. You got a small business development center in the area there on the Beaufort uh, Community College campus here or college campus. It's free consulting. They'll help put projections together. They do a lot of good things. We work with them and we will try to do startup loans when we can. Uh, they are probably uh, the most difficult type of loan to get, whether it be an economic development supported loan or straight from the bank, I think is probably most businesses now. And our next question is asking if there are any types of businesses that cannot participate in this loan program. Uh, generally speaking, this is for for-profit entities but we have gotten from the, the green light from the EDA to look at certain nonprofits, but 95 plus percent of what we do, uh, Bill, is a for-profit business uh, privately owned and owner occupied. So not for investment, real estate, and those kinds of things. All right, Julie is asking, what are the biggest challenges for businesses when applying for these loans? Well, I think one of the business biggest challenges is um, being able to work with your uh, partners, which could be the small business development centers, the banks, uh, in putting together the information that is needed. And I am going to leave an electronic flyer on our programs with the chamber, which they could send out on that flyer. It'll list the business information that we need. It's generally the same type of information that a bank might need to evaluate a credit request. And that's for operating businesses up to two years of business tax returns, personal tax returns of the owner, a personal financial statement sometimes projections and a business plan for the business. And that's just to get everything started. So it does take a little bit of time. Loans are underwritten, but we have uh, extended terms and conditions because we're not as controlled by banks. So we like to help get banks done, uh, loans done with banks or without banks that might not be made without our support. All right, and Alexa was asking where she can find more information on this, and you just answered that question. And uh, Kelly will also have that flyer in our uh, chat box. So go ahead to the chat box, you can check or click on that for additional information. Randy, it's uh, been terrific seeing you today. Anything that you would like to, to close with before we, before we move on? I just wanna tell the businesses again, you got a great chamber. I thoroughly enjoy working that with them. We are very fortunate in Rock Hill to have one of your former chamber employees, Anna Horn running our economic development uh, incubator. That was a nice surprise for me to find out. Uh, I get down there quite often. I love to meet in person with businesses and talk about if we can help. Uh, we can certainly accomplish a lot over the telephone or through Zoom calls. And it is my mission to uh, lend those additional dollars in that one program. And then we have uh, uh, plenty of support in our other programs to assist the area businesses. So it's no uh, more difficult than a quick phone call. And the chamber will have my direct numbers and the number into Catawba Regional, where you can also find more information. 
out about our programs as we support the Low Country COG down in your area. Randy, well done this morning, and thank you so much for sitting down with us. We look forward to uh, getting the information out. And then again, if you have questions, please don't hesitate to ask us. We'll get them to Randy, or you can get them to Randy directly. Great seeing you today. As always, Bill Kelly, I appreciate it. Uh, everybody go enjoy all those nice festivals I read about and know that you're having. Have a great week, and here's to a great 2022 to everyone. Thank you. Come and see thank us soon. You. All right, that was Randy Pelissero. Great uh, presentation this morning. And uh, now we're gonna move on and shift gears, talk about local health care. And to do that, we have Joel Taylor, and Joel's the market CEO of Hilton Head Regional Health Healthcare. He's gonna give us an update on the, uh, the hospitals and, and the medical staff, how they're doing and how patients are doing uh, with COVID and anything else that might be on his mind. Joel, good morning, good to see you. Good morning, Bill. Good to see you. Thank you again for the opportunity to, to share a little bit about what is happening here with, uh, with everyone's local health system. At Hilton Head Regional Healthcare across our two hospitals this morning, we have 14 COVID-positive patients in-house. Thankfully, only three of those are in our ICU. Um, in total, this number is slightly lower than how we ended January, where we were consistently in the low 20s in total. Um, so we are seeing a slight decline and hoping that continues in the coming weeks um, before us. Uh, we have seen a decline in testing and overall presentations of COVID symptoms in our emergency departments. However, our positivity rate, so those patients that we do test for COVID, that, that rate continues to be around 25%. Um, at varying times, it's been as high as 34% uh, during this latest surge. So a, a decline, but that, excuse me, that total admission volume and positivity rate has been stable over the last seven to 10 days. Um, as of today, internally from our operations, we are now allowing one visitor per emergency room patient. Um, we have no other visitor restrictions in place. Um, really, as we have gone through this fourth surge, uh, we have tried our best to, to not impact uh, patient visitation as much as possible, understanding that it's important for the patients and their families and friends, uh, and certainly we believe part of the care and healing process. Uh, we do encourage everyone when out in public to continue to practice social distancing, hand washing, and wearing a mask. Uh, as I said earlier, I'm hopeful that uh, we, uh, we are nearing the end of this. As always, I'm interested in what Dr. Kelly shares about the, uh, the statewide uh, results that we're seeing from a COVID standpoint. Uh, other than COVID, we continue to uh, meet the needs of the community from a healthcare perspective. Very uh, busy emergency rooms, um, very busy uh, operating rooms, and certainly caring for a lot of people uh, that are ill and have uh, do not have COVID. So uh, happy to answer any questions uh, that, that the group may have. But overall, we are in a stable state um, and uh, hopeful that uh, we are on the tail end of this, COVID, this latest COVID surge. All right, Joel, thank you. Uh, one of our questions is coming from Tom, and Tom is asking when you see visitor restrictions being lifted. So, yeah, uh, real quick, I think today we made the decision to allow visitors back in our ERs. We have not restricted visitors to the floors um, over the last month or so. Um, you know, we kind of held that card, waiting to see if the surge uh, got as high as it did back around the Labor Day holiday. Thankfully, it, it did not, has not. 
Um, so the emergency rooms are really the only place that we've restricted visitors and we've, uh, we've loosened that as of today, um, just based on what we're seeing. We do still suggest and require rather uh, one visitor per patient um, at a time uh, and ask that people not wait in the waiting rooms if they are not with the patient, uh, just to again, try and reduce crowding. Joe Brent is asking this morning if you're being impacted by staffing shortages like many hospitals across the country. Uh, yes, sir, uh, we are. I think uh, like not just healthcare, but every business out there, I think right now is, is working to find staff. Uh, we're in that same boat and, and locally what we're looking at doing is redefining and, and re, uh, repurposing uh, existing staff, also uh, trying new things or or what, what was old is new again. Uh, we are looking to hire LPNs into certain places, into certain departments. So looking at different ways we can continue to meet the healthcare needs of the community, uh, but definitely we are challenged. Um, and if anybody out there is a nurse or knows a nurse, uh, we are certainly hiring and looking for good people to join our team. All right, uh, the next question is coming from Linda. And Linda is asking if uh, you're seeing other surgeries being postponed or if your surgeries are back at the normal levels pre-COVID? Great question. We have not postponed. What we experienced in January uh, pretty, uh, pretty frequently was patients uh, coming down with COVID or COVID symptoms and, and self-postponing um, those surgeries. Those have, uh, they appear to have rebounded so far in February. So I take that as a positive that uh, though it's still certainly prevalent in the community, maybe it's impacting fewer and fewer people. Joel, uh, Joel, we have a, a team member that just recently on Monday had surgery there, and I was texting with our team member and asking if there's anything that uh, the person wanted me to share with you. And uh, just reading that, uh, the person said, I will say everyone has been wonderful, and uh, I've been very pleased with the care. It's been a great experience. So she's still with you. And uh, hopefully it'll get sprung today, but just a, a positive from one of our staffers here with a great experience at your hospital. Thank you, Bill. Honored, as always, to take care of our community. You know, we talked about it uh, with, within staff, with the medical staff. We're here as community hospitals, taking care of our friends, our neighbors, um, our family members, and we do not lose sight of that. So I appreciate the opportunity. I'm honored uh, to, uh, to have been able to uh, provide that service to uh, one of your team members. Thank you. Great. Well, Joel, thanks for checking in with us this morning. I know the community uh, values and appreciates hearing from you. And uh, as always, certainly glad to see you. It looks like you've got a little more of a growth going on there since last time I saw you. Yeah, it's not it's not too cold down here. Um, so January, February, having a beer just not too bad. It's, it's grayer than it was this time last year. I'll say that. So. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, we're so glad you could be with us. Thank you so much, Bill. I appreciate it. All right. Following Joel, we have uh, our favorite epidemiologist, Dr. Jane Kelly uh, with South Carolina DHEC. And uh, uh, Dr. Kelly, welcome back. We have several questions for you. But before that, we're looking forward to your uh, informative presentation. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I sent some slides to Kelly yesterday, but here I think I can just share my slides. It'll be easier. 
Um, this is our the state of the state. Blue <laughs> bars are the number of confirmed cases, new cases each day, and the green is the seven-day moving average. And as you can see, after that huge peak in January, we've now had several successive weeks of decreasing number of new cases. However, the number of deaths lags behind the number of cases. And looking at the week that ended January 29th with 382 deaths, the number of deaths is increasing right now, which is what you would anticipate. People become seriously ill usually two weeks after they are infected, if they're going to become seriously ill. I do want to point out that our seven-day death rate in South Carolina is twice the national rate, 10.2 per 100,000. More than 95% of these deaths are among people who are not fully vaccinated. People focus on breakthrough cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. But again, I got to point out that there are really very few people compared to the number of individuals who become infected, seriously ill, and die who are unvaccinated. Here's our current situation in terms of percent of people vaccinated, about 53% of people age five and older in South Carolina are fully vaccinated. So this is fully vaccinated, meaning that they have had two doses of vaccine. This is of uh, Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. Doesn't necessarily mean that they are boosted as well, but we do recommend getting a booster if you're five months out from your second dose of Pfizer or Moderna or five months out from uh, a Janssen or Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And I'm gonna tell you why. This graph says it in one picture. So the, the uh, blue line are among people who are unvaccinated. And this is a study from LA, Los Angeles County, looking at hospitalization rates, but there's a parallel situation with people with number of deaths. The um, dashed line are people who are fully vaccinated, without a booster and the dotted line fully vaccinated with booster. So if you're fully vaccinated, you have a much, much lower rate of hospitalization compared to people who are unvaccinated. But you can make that even lower by getting that booster. The BA2 lineage is present in South Carolina. Now, this is a sister lineage. The original Omicron is BA1, and it is still far and away, you know, 90, more than 99% of new cases in, of, uh, in South Carolina. The BA2, I see it nicknamed in the headlines a stealth Omicron, and that's really, or the stealth variant, and that's really unfortunate. It is not named that because it's harder to detect. Your rapid or PCR tests will turn positive, including with the BA2 lineage. It's called stealth simply because you have to do genotyping, you know, you have to do the genomic testing to tell whether it is BA2 versus regular Omicron or other variants. There is no evidence that it causes more severe disease. There is some evidence that it has increased transmissibility, meaning that it will spread even more quickly than the original Omicron. As I mentioned, we've had two cases thus far identified in South Carolina uh, in the upstate region. Number of questions recently about should I get a fourth dose if I'm five months out now from my original booster, should I get a fourth dose? Right now, CDC and DHEC are not recommending a fourth dose for everybody. 
recommending it only for people who are moderately to severely immunocompromised. Those are the folks who got a third dose one month after their second dose and now are due for a booster, which makes it a fourth dose. They're due for their booster five months later. But I will say this, Israel began vaccinating people aged 60 and older with a fourth dose beginning in December of 2021. So we're just now starting to get some preliminary data from their experience. And what they have found thus far is that the rate of infection, and this is any kind of infection, any you know symptomatic, asymptomatic infection, was cut in half for people at least 12 days after their fourth dose compared to those who had only three doses of vaccine. And the rate of severe illness, again, this is for people age 60 and older, was more than four times lower. And I've included the link to, this is a preprint, meaning that, you know, the statistics haven't been checked, you know, it hasn't been validated, but there's at least some preliminary evidence that a fourth dose might be appropriate for some people, particularly those older adults. But we're, we're waiting to get some more information on this. You may have heard that the Vaccine and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, the FDA Vaccine Committee, is going to be meeting Tuesday, February 15th, to talk about vaccine for those aged six months through four years of age. And if they give emergency use authorization, then CDC weighs in with their uh, recommendations. And that vaccine for that age group may be available as soon as the week of February 21st. So on our part, for DTEC's part, we are working with vaccine providers to make sure that they are trained, that they understand what, you know, about the dosing, uh, about how, you know, how to order the vaccine, et cetera, how to do all the logistics around the vaccine. There is a fourth vaccine uh, on the horizon in the United States, and that's something called Novavax. It does not have messenger RNA. It has no genetic material. It is simply it uses a protein, the spike protein, uh, that is created into a, a lipid protein capsule. Um, and it's two doses, three weeks apart. Looks like it is 90% vaccine efficacy, you know, the same level of efficacy, effectiveness as we have seen with the other vaccines, the mRNA vaccines. Uh, and the majority of after the vaccination symptoms that a person might experience have been mild, you know, arm soreness, achy all over, maybe fever for a day. And there have been zero cases of moderate or severe disease in the vaccine group uh, in the studies of Novavax. So another highly effective vaccine, more good news. I know what's on everybody's mind is, are we on the downslope? Does that mean COVID may become endemic? Will it go away completely? I think most experts agree that COVID is not likely to be eradicated or eliminated, go away completely. But at some point, almost everyone will either have had COVID, been vaccinated, or maybe been vaccinated and had COVID. And there'll be very few people who are still susceptible to the virus. Maybe little children, you know, people who are, who are newly coming into our population. That's when COVID will become endemic. Now, I want to say a little bit about what that word means. Endemic means it's always there, but at lower rates. You could still have seasonal fluctuations in transmission. And endemic doesn't mean mild. Some people may still get severe disease. 
but many fewer will die. When will that happen? Are we on, headed that way right now? Well, many experts do think so, but some others warn that, you know, we've got low rates of vaccination in some of our states, including South Carolina, only a little bit more than 50% of South Carolinians age five and up are vaccinated. So we still have a lot of susceptibles out there. You know, nationally, many public health agencies are recommending that we start transitioning away from what we've been doing, the case investigation, contact tracing, masking, and recommending more different approaches for outbreak investigations. But that's nationally, nationally where we have a large number of people vaccinated. South Carolina is not in that position. We're still being pretty cautious about our recommendations. It is unfortunately still possible that yet another variant could emerge. I always end with my email address, kellyjm1 at dhec.sc.gov. You are more than welcome to, um, to uh, text me um, or excuse me, to email me directly if I don't uh, cover your questions today. Okay, thank Dr. You. Kelly. Dr. Kelly, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, as always, we have questions for you. Uh, the first question is coming from Scott. And Scott is asking, what about flu season in South Carolina? Have there been many flu cases? There have been quite a few flu cases. I mean, we had been at a very high rate for a while. It's come down more recently, but we're still at least at moderate level of flu transmission. And it is possible to have both the flu and COVID at the same time. I have seen, um, what, is, what is the term? Uh, uh, fluvid, you know, some combo of flu and, and COVID. I do want to make it clear that it's not as though influenza and COVID have gotten together and created a, you know, yet another infectious disease. No, it's that it is possible to have both COVID and influenza at the same time. So, we, you know, flu has not been as bad as it could be, uh, but we still have moderate levels of flu circulating. So we still recommend getting a flu shot as well as your COVID vaccine. Okay, our, our next question is coming from Lucy, and Lucy is asking if endemic and herd and herd mentality are the same thing. You mean herd immunity? I think. Um, her, so, I, you know, personally, I've always disliked the term herd immunity. I don't think it's really appropriate with COVID nineteen because transmission depends upon biology how, you know, how infectious is this virus and also people's behavior. So, you know, to put a number on herd immunity is really not all that helpful because it depends upon whether you are outside in the open spaces and therefore not transmitting or whether you're closely gathered together. So endemic and herd immunity are a little bit different. Herd immunity literally was taken from veterinary medicine. You know, how many cows does it take to have a disease before you, the herd in general is immune? Um, it, I think it's less applicable in, in human beings. Um, endemic has some relationship to this. It means that the, we no longer are having huge surges, but that the virus is still there and comes and goes. Okay, thank you. The next question is coming from Molly. And Molly wants to know about, uh, uh, there are some that don't believe children in schools should have to mask up. What is DHEC's stance on that? 
DHEC's stance is to still mask up at this time and that we look forward to the day where we're not recommending that and that day will come. But right now we have really high, I know you saw the number of cases coming down, but you know we're still at a very high point in terms of the number of cases. And it's true that most children do not have severe disease, but not all. I mean, our, our pediatric hospitals are still pretty full with kids who have sick uh, you know, serious disease from COVID-19. So our, our recommendation is still that kids mask up in schools, but hopefully that will change soon. Okay, the next one is, how much immunity do you have if you're vaxxed, boosted, and had, have had a positive case of Omicron? Pretty, I think you're pretty safe from severe disease, but that doesn't mean that you can't get that virus again, get infected again. Remember, being vaccinated doesn't mean that you now have like this magical shield in front of you so that virus particles just bounce off. You can still breathe in the virus. You can still get it from somebody else's infected. But if you're vaccinated, boosted, you've had COVID before, your immune system is primed. It is ready to uh, attack that virus with antibodies and with killer T cells and the other things in your immune system. So you're very unlikely to get severe disease. You're more likely to have symptoms like a common cold or no symptoms at all. Okay, the next one is coming from Melinda. And Melinda is asking, is there a danger of multiple vaccines and boosters? How much is too much? <laughs> Not that we've seen yet. And certainly that's a theoretical concern, but I tell you, we look back at other vaccines. Um, and I know, for example, there was a study done with the pneumococcal vaccine, the vaccine against pneumonia, because there were some individuals who were getting that multiple doses of that pneumovax uh, vaccine, and there was no adverse reaction to that. So not that we have seen, and we know that we've also had cases of people, there are, there are people who have gone out there and gotten up to 10 doses of an mRNA vaccine. Um, they got their own reasons for why they did that. Uh, we're certainly not recommending do, doing that, but I can say that at this time, we, nobody has seen any adverse reactions from that. Okay, Dr. Kelly, thank you. Uh, appreciate your time, your presentation is always taking the questions. And as Dr. Kelly said earlier, her information is in the chat box as well. And uh, I can certainly tell you from experiences, she is, she will respond and she'll do it in a very timely manner. Thank you so much. All right, Dr. Kelly, see you soon. Okay, we're gonna switch gears now and uh, we're gonna talk to another, about another important part of our uh, local economy and that's short-term rentals. You know, the pandemic has changed the way people travel and home and villa rentals are in high demand, not just in the low country, but really across the country. And uh, the town of Hilton Head Island is currently examining, examining a short-term rental policy. And here to talk about those trends and regulations is uh, a leader in the rental industry from Island Time, Drew Brown. He's the manager there at Island Time. And it's also important to note that uh, Drew is on the board of directors of the Vacation Rental Management Association. Drew, good to see you. I know you've had a busy morning and thanks for, thanks for squeezing us in. Yeah, happy to be here, Bill. Thanks, thanks for having me, and and uh, a very important thing to talk about today. Just so, update our listeners on uh, just update our our listeners on where things are with the short term rental policy and what you see going forward. 
Absolutely. Uh, so as Bill said, my name is Drew Brown. I'm the managing partner here at Island Time Hilton Head. Uh, so we manage uh, roughly uh, 110 properties uh, for uh, short-term rentals here on the island. Um, I'm actually also heavily involved in our, our community. So um, have been uh, involved with the, the, the town of Hilton Head uh, as a former chair of the Accommodations Advisory uh, Tax Advisory Council. And working with the town right now uh, with a group of uh, rental companies to um, discuss, learn, and advise what, what exactly will be going on with the proposed short-term ordinance. So the process started back in September and uh, through many, many meetings and, and with uh, lots of different review, uh, it's come to a point now where the uh, town of Hilton Head staff is starting to make some recommendations for uh, what would be possibly proposed ordinances uh, for the town of Hilton Head. What that would mean is for uh, short-term rental properties, those that are rented out um, you know, on a, on a few day to weekly basis or longer, uh, there would be some different items uh, basically around the parking noise uh, and trash for all of those properties. Um, we've had a lot of in-depth conversations with the town and they're now at the point where they're crafting that language so that there would be um, possibly things that would be enforced uh, if there were violations so that the community has the ability to voice those concerns. And also uh, there's a, a guideline and a regulation for, for professional managers and individual owners that, that use uh, their property for short-term rentals. So as of right now, uh, at the end of this month, the town uh, will and town staff will be getting some of that information back to the public planning committee. Uh, there was already one presentation uh, most recently um, for both the professional managers, short-term rental owners and the public about what those proposed ordinances. So you can find more information on that on the Town of Hilton Head's website uh, under major initiatives, and it's called the Short-Term Rental Initiative. And right now uh, that will go to the Public Planning Committee and uh, will be reviewed. And then at some point uh, there will be some additional items that are looked at, um, possibly more changes to it for it to then come out of committee and go to uh, the town council for a vote at some point. So uh, the timeline that they, we have been given is roughly sometime between the end of uh, February and the end of uh, March for it to come out of committee and get to council. Uh, to then go to a vote and then uh, would look forward a implementation of sometime in um, the beginning of July. It is important to note that uh, the town has currently proposed um, that in conjunction with the new business license that is required for uh, all rental uh, property, uh, short-term rental property, uh, that that would be part of the registration process is um, some type of verification of the uh, the new short-term rental ordinance that would possibly be put in play. Now, uh, the good part about that is if you would apply for your um, business license before the, the deadline and, and before uh, July 1st, you uh, would possibly be exempt um, from having to um, uh, comply with those regulations until uh, the beginning of next year. Um, one of the important things is professional managers and as uh, individual owners that rent their properties, 
is we want to make sure that we're sharing the proper information. So right now is a very large booking cycle in advance for people to come to Hilton Head. Uh, so we want to make sure that there's enough information so that when people come to the island, they can uh, easily comply. Uh, one of the biggest proponents of this is going to be voluntary compliance, which means educating the public and making sure that they understand, very similar to the beach rules that were um, uh, changed last year, what exactly is going to be uh, changing. And really, then we'll have to wait for the town to show uh, what the enforcement looks like. So um, there's been a large group of uh, rental companies, about 43 different rental companies. And we're looking, uh, we're actually working in, in conjunction with what's called the South Carolina Vacation Rental Alliance uh, and the South Carolina Association of Realtors um, to try and make sure that all avenues of this are, are very, um, very much uh, in-depth vetted and also make sure that there's not any uh, major uh, initiatives that the town is looking at that would be uh, overly prohibitory uh, for for rentals. It's a, such a large portion of our economy. Um, you know, us as professional managers are not against regulations, but we are uh, for fair regulations and enforceable regulations that allow us to be able to really work um, in conjunction with our guests, uh, the owners and the town all together. So that it, again, with voluntary compliance, we can we can all make a big difference. Um, so I wouldn't expect to see any type of changes in the in, in anything in the next uh, few months until it really comes to town council. But uh, we are working very, very diligently to make sure that um, the, the short term rental property owners voices are heard. Um, there was, uh, you can view the survey results from the town, they're, they're finalizing those. Um, as I said, when working with conjunction with the South Carolina Vacation Rental Alliance, um, uh, we funded a, uh, an economic impact and housing study, which has been, uh, for the record, turned into the town of Hilton Head that shows uh, you know, the, uh, the impact of the amount of uh, jobs, revenue and taxes that are, are produced from the short-term rental accommodation industry and then the tertiary markets, uh, including uh, hotels and uh, you know, food and beverage as well. So uh, that can be viewed. Um, I'm happy to, to share that with anyone that on this call or anyone that has any questions, the Chamber of Commerce does have that as well. And the town of Hilton Head has that study as well. And, you know, we, we are now in a position where other larger groups um, are starting to get involved uh, in terms of the data. So uh, we are really trying to work through and make sure that we have all the data uh, as accurately as possible with the uh, most amounts of correct listings that are on Hilton Head. Uh, so we really know, are we, are we fighting against an issue of, is there really a problem or are we solving for a, a very, very small issue? Uh, and, and we wanna make sure that we're not uh, putting ourselves in a position where um, it would detract from the tourism or detract from any type of hospitality on the island because it's such a driving force for Hilton Head. So that's where it stands at the moment. Uh, we do have some other projects that we're working on. Um, we, we plan to have on uh, the 22nd or 23rd of February, we're going to have a, uh, a very similar format to this. We're going to have a, a policy summit uh, that uh, we bring in different uh, international leaders in the business that talk about and can inform uh, both our, our local uh, businesses and our, our lawmakers and policymakers uh, about the, uh, the impact of regulations in the short-term rental uh, business and accommodations industry and making sure that we're doing that in a very um, 
a wise way so that it does not impact the overall low country economy. So uh, that's where it stands right now, Bill. Um, if there's anything that I've left out, please feel free. I'm happy to answer any questions from anyone on the call. Or if you have any additional questions, I'm happy to do so. All right, Drew, thank you so much for that informative update. And uh, we do have a few questions for you. Appreciate your willingness to answer those. The first one's coming from Karen. And Karen is asking, what are some, some of the rules that rental companies put in place to help balance the vacationer homeowner dynamic in the community? It's a great question. So, you know, as professional managers, uh, it, it's always about the experience. So, uh, you know, we work with homeowners all the time uh, to make sure that that we're uh, getting the right guests and that we're, we're following rules. So every rental company has their own form of a, a rental agreement with a guest. And so there is certain things um, that that are allowed and not allowed. So we are trying to rule out a lot of uh, some of the negative behavior that that does happen. So if a guest violates a, a guest rental agreement, uh, the rental company has the ability to go back to the, the guest and or uh, in some instances, if they're providing insurance, pro you know, file insurance claims. So we're, we have rules and regulations. Uh, we, we post all the information for local ordinances in the properties. Um, you know, as professional managers, you know, we, we put things in like uh, fire extinguishers into the properties. We make sure that we have, uh, you know, some active smoke detectors. We change batteries on those every couple of times a year. Um, all the things that some of the, the ordinances are, are looking to have are not going to be issues for professional managers because we're already providing that standard level of care. Um, you know, we also try to uh, we have occupancy limits for every single property as a professional manager. You want to make sure that you're not uh, allowing too many guests to stay in a property uh, and you work in conjunction with the homeowner and or if there's a property owners association to make sure that that's an accurate number. So those are, it's a great question. Those are all things that, that a professional property management company is doing as of now. Uh, all right, Drew, that was a good lead in there to our next question. And our next question is coming from Aaron and Aaron is asking this morning, how are v VRBO and Airbnb rentals handled when it comes to complaints? So that's part of uh, why we are in this situation is so, you know, as my company or any professional company, um, we have on call services 24 hours a day, um, you know, 365 days a year, including holidays. So for some of those VRBO and Airbnb, uh, what we would call host situations. Uh, if they are not as responsive as the professional managers, you can be put into a position where a complaint is not answered uh, appropriately in, in, in a fair amount of time. Part of the proposed ordinance um, is that you have to have a point of contact uh, so that the, a, a response has to be made within an hour of a complaint. Um, so, you know, while that seems somewhat daunting for us as professional managers, that is not as much of an obstacle as it is going to be for a individual host. Um, what, what the proposal for the ordinance is, is it shows that there would be uh, a point of contact that has to live within 50 miles of the area that would be able to respond to an issue within uh, uh, an hour of the original complaint. Um, we're still working through the logistics of all of that with, with the town. Cause again, we want to make sure we've got something that's really, um, clear for, for both individual hosts, uh, individual owners and, and for professional managers. And frankly, both are held to the same standard. Um, so, so the logistics of that, but that is part of the proposed ordinance is that there would be a point of contact, 
that would have to be responsible for um, it's not resolving the issue because some issues can't be resolved in an hour, uh, but it would be responding to that issue and responding to the person making that complaint. So um, that's really as we get down to um, the enactment of the, the ordinance is will be something that the, the town of Hilton Head will will need to provide further uh, instruction about so that it can be properly properly communicated with uh, guests, uh, owners, and with rental companies. Thank you. One one more question for you, and this is coming from Missy, and Missy is asking, is the business licenses, license fee for short-term rentals a flat fee or a percentage of the rental fee? So, great question, and, and, and that's uh, uh, just to, to, to digress for one second, the business license is going to somewhat be uh, orientated with the, the, the short-term rental ordinance for the future right now. Um, you know, because of the Business Standardization Act, there is the Town of Hilton Head is requiring uh, for a business license. So the way that that is um, calculated is that if you, uh, and this is my understanding, I would I would uh, make sure if you have direct questions, you can speak to April Aikens at the Town of Hilton Head and Revenue Services. Uh, she is the the wizard of that. Um, and she's very, very well versed. But uh, my understanding, and, and, and I, I do have a very good understanding of it, is that the first uh, you would report based off of your 2021 revenue that was produced at the property. And what you would do is the first $2,000 uh, of revenue is uh, classed at a $92 uh, flat rate fee. And then each $1,000 above that $2,000 until you would get to the total amount of your, your gross revenue would be a dollar 17, I believe. So um, you would need to calculate that. The town of Hilton Head is, is very open to helping those that are having that, that exact question, Bill, to, to answer that. But uh, from all of my work with that, and I was heavily involved with it, that is, that is my understanding. That's what, what we are discussing with our clients and also making sure that they are um, making sure that they have applied and that they, they have paid that uh, a fee uh, so that you can have your, your business license. All right, Drew, thank you. That's going to wrap up our questions for you. Uh, appreciate the presentation, the update, and uh, I'm sure we'll be providing more information along the way. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, everyone. All right. That was Drew Brown with Island Time, the managing partner there, sharing uh, information about the short-term rental uh, policy that might be coming forward. All right, so we wrap things up. A couple things to remind you of, and it's hard to believe that uh, 59, if I was going to say what's going to happen in 59 days, what would your immediate answer be? Well, I'll tell you, it's the uh, RBC Heritage. Can you believe that? 59 days away till we get uh, uh, the PGA Tour players back on the island for the RBC Heritage. Looking forward to a great event there. Uh, we'll be coming to you again back on our traditional Wednesday day. Sorry that we had to, uh, due to conflicts and travel schedules, we had to make it on a Thursday this week, but we'll be back on March the 2nd and look forward to talking uh, with Steve Wilmot about uh, uh, the RBC Heritage. We'll also be getting some updates from uh, the real estate industry as well as several others. So put that on your calendar, March the 2nd. Uh, thank you for being with us. Make it a great day. Take care of one another and don't forget to be kind. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Chamber Channel's Power Hour. We encourage you to tune in for future episodes. Never miss one by subscribing to our channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts.